You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Vincent Costello, Morgan Costello, and Damien Monaghan. yourself in Holland and were to make your way slightly north and east from the centre of The Hague to the coastline, you would find yourself in Scaveningham, an upmarket seaside district. It boasts a long sandy beach and an abundance of bars and restaurants, making it one of the most popular seaside resorts in the Netherlands, favoured by both Dutch nationals and tourists alike. Just before 3am on Saturday, April 29th, 2000, a resident of a luxury apartment complex overlooking Scaveningham Beach noticed a smell of burning in the building. The man alerted the caretaker and together the pair began a search of the high-rise building to try and identify the source of the smell. When they reached the fifth floor, they saw thick smoke pouring into the hallway from under the door of apartment 1058. The caretaker notified the fire service, who arrived on the scene within minutes, evacuating all of the fifth-floor residents. As the sprawling 14-floor complex was home to almost a thousand people, the fire crew knew they needed to contain the blaze as quickly as possible to minimise the risk of mass casualties. Upon entering the apartment, they found the fire raging throughout. The firefighters began their primary search, making their way through the rooms as they looked for any sign of human life. All of the main living areas and the bedrooms were empty. However, when they came to the small bathroom at the rear of the apartment, they found a gruesome sight. Lying in the bath were multiple human bodies, all completely engulfed in flames. On closer inspection, the firefighters saw that there were fireworks scattered around the bodies and throughout the living space. For this reason, they called in experts to come and help them safely deal with the incendiary devices. It was also noticed that gas from the kitchen was leaking into the apartment and it seemed like they had narrowly avoided what could have been a massive explosion. Once the fire had been extinguished, an examination of the apartment began. Dutch police were notified, and they set about investigating the fire. The bodies in the bath were horrifically burnt, making it impossible to determine any identifiable features. Investigators initially thought that there were two deceased individuals, but as they processed the scene, they found the remains of a third body at the bottom of the pile. Strewn throughout the cluttered living room was a cache of guns, ammunition, cocaine, ecstasy and Viagra. Despite the suspicious circumstances surrounding the blaze and the illegal items that were uncovered in the apartment, officers initially assumed that the fire was somehow accidental and that the three people had died as a result of smoke inhalation or burning. That weekend was a long weekend in the Netherlands, meaning that there was no pathologist available to perform post-mortems until the following Tuesday, and this hampered the investigation hugely. In the absence of a forensic examination to guide them, all the police could do was focus their energy on trying to identify the dead. 
Speaking to the building manager, they learned that the unit was sublet to an Irishman named Damien Monaghan, who was originally from Ennis in County Clare. A search of the gutted apartment turned up five passports, one of which belonged to the 24-year-old Clare man. The other four passports showed the identities of two brothers from Bancha in Tipperary, named Vincent and Morgan Costello, a Limerick man named John Noonan, and a woman named Vanessa Cope from Northern Ireland. Officers were working off the assumption that one of the deceased was Monaghan, but the bodies were badly damaged in the fire, so a visual identification was not possible. On Tuesday morning, a preliminary post-mortem was carried out on the bodies. This determined that the deceased were all men. To the surprise of investigating police, it was found that they had suffered very violent deaths. All three of the men had been brutally tortured. Each man was shot multiple times in the head, and their bodies showed signs of extensive post-mortem mutilation. Earliest media reports all carried headlines about the horrific injuries that the men were found to have, and it was widely reported that the bodies had been injected with polyester foam, something commonly used on building sites to insulate cavity walls. Following their deaths, the men's bodies were doused with a highly flammable fuel, which was also poured around the apartment before being set alight. These findings completely changed the course of the investigation, and the police intensified their efforts to identify the men. At the time, there were two Gardaí stationed permanently in The Hague as part of the Europol network, and in the wake of the post-mortem results, these officers were briefed, along with representatives from the Irish embassy. The Irish officers, based in the Netherlands, wasted no time contacting local stations back in Ireland to try and trace the four men whose passports had been found in the apartment. They also reached out to the police in Northern Ireland in an attempt to track down Vanessa Cope. Local Gardaí in Ennis and Bansha spoke to the families of Damien Monaghan and Vincent and Morgan Costello, trying to piece together the situation. None of the men had been heard from since the weekend by their loved ones, and efforts to make contact with them were unsuccessful. Morgan had been due to fly back to Ireland on Tuesday, May 2nd, but he hadn't boarded his flight. All of this led officers to believe that it was these three men who had died in the apartment in the Netherlands, but in order to confirm this, they would need to match DNA, fingerprints and dental records. Samples and records were shipped to the Netherlands, but the process was expected to take a number of days, leading to an agonising wait for their families back in Ireland. The search was also on for John Noonan and Vanessa Cope, and authorities feared that the pair may have been kidnapped by whoever had murdered the three men in the Scaveningham apartment. However, this was ruled out when John Noonan was eventually tracked down alive and well in Ireland, telling Barry Roach for the Irish Independent that his passport had been stolen two years before, when he lived in the Netherlands. As a result, he ended up having to get temporary documentation when he moved back to Ireland a few months after the theft. Noonan told the reporter that he'd gotten a phone call from a guard the Wednesday before to tell him about the discovery of his passport in the Dutch flat. He said he was taken aback at the news, and though he had met some Irish people when he was in the Netherlands, he hadn't recognised any of the names that had been mentioned in the papers. Garda sources confirmed his story, and Noonan was reluctant to be further drawn on the matter. He told Barry Roach, quote, It's a big shock to find yourself linked with this sort of thing, but all I really want to do is get on with my life. Despite extensive searches, no trace of the existence of Vanessa Cope could be found, leading officers to believe that the passport found in this name was a forgery. 
Detectives began to study the background of the three dead men closely. Neighbours reported a frequent smell of cannabis coming from the apartment and said that the men had a constant flow of foreign visitors. It was also noted by other residents that they tended to live reclusively and had been rarely seen in recent months, only leaving the apartment for fast food once darkness fell. Machinery used in the production of amphetamines was discovered in the charred remains of the flat and further drug-related equipment was found in the storage space in the basement of the building that was allocated to apartment 1058. It also emerged that Damien Monaghan had received several thousand pounds via Western Union transfer from Limerick in the months leading up to the killing, money that Gardy said was in exchange for small ecstasy shipments to the dealers in Limerick and Clare. These factors led Dutch police to surmise that the murders were drug-related. However, Gardy were keen to stress that none of the three men had any drug-related convictions in Ireland. Nonetheless, the sheer brutality of the murders suggested that the killings were gangland-related and police were quick to link it to ongoing drug trafficking in operation between Ireland and the Netherlands. However, they remained tight-lipped about the lines of inquiry that they were following, leading to mounting speculation across Irish and Dutch media outlets. It transpired that a number of high-profile seizures had been made in both Ireland and the Netherlands in recent months, and the main theory was that one or all of the murdered men had passed information about drug shipments to the authorities. This had led to the searches and seizures, and the drug lords found out and killed the men in revenge. The sadistic mutilation of the bodies suggested that it was the work of hired killers, and indeed an article written by Dutch journalist Yolanda Westrop in De Telegraph confirmed that Eastern European crime gangs had carried out similar acts of torture and murder in the recent past. She went on to comment that four large ecstasy-producing laboratories were uncovered in the past year, so gangs were getting increasingly jumpy about police informers. One police source told the media, quote, These are hard, experienced criminals who have committed crimes before, so they know how to cover their tracks and avoid leaving clues. On Thursday, May 4th, five days after the killings, forensic experts returned to the scene and spent the day collecting evidence. Hanneke Elkmans of the Public Prosecutor's Office told the press that their priority was to conclusively identify the victims, which was expected to take another number of days. They were also focused on tracking down the perpetrators. She promised, quote, We will find the killers. Despite having 18 detectives working full-time on the case, progress was slow for the Dutch investigation, and the lack of developments meant that the rumour mill was still in overdrive surrounding the murders. One Irish news outlet reported that detectives in the Netherlands and Ireland were now satisfied that there was a direct link between the murders and an £8 million haul of drugs and guns that had been seized in Monaghan the previous year. The cargo, which was destined for the real IRA, had been shipped from Amsterdam and was concealed inside pallets of bread on a lorry when Gardy intercepted it near Castle Blaney. Garda sources said that the seizure was made as a result of a tip-off and it was reported that detectives now believed that the killings were ordered by a drug baron who suspected one of the three Irish men of being the informer. Another media source printed an article suggesting that police had received intelligence that the main suspect was a seasoned Irish criminal living in the Netherlands who was known as the Colonel. 
The colonel had been running a lucrative drugs empire in tandem with a major Dutch supplier until March 2000, when he was arrested in Amsterdam in possession of a pistol. Upon searching his house, officers found a number of firearms, 150 kilos of amphetamine powder and 100,000 ecstasy tablets. A further search of a second property uncovered a huge stash of 30 guns. Two days after the colonel's arrest, 26 people were arrested and questioned in Ireland in relation to the operation. At the time of the murders in Scaveningham, 18 of these people had been charged with drug and weapon-related offences. A month after these raids, the colonel's Dutch associate was arrested and charged in relation to the manufacture and exportation of drugs and firearms. These events, along with a number of major drug seizures, all occurred in the months preceding the triple murder of the Irishmen though Dutch police wouldn't be drawn on whether they thought the killings could be as a result of one of the men being an informant. As new theories cropped up on a daily basis, Dutch public prosecutor Kitty Noy made it clear that the team were still following up on a large number of leads. But when asked about the link to an organised drug gang, she refused to comment. Another week passed before the bodies were confirmed, as being that of Damien Monaghan, Vincent Costello and Morgan Costello. Damien's mother, Nora, travelled to the Netherlands to put an end to the 10-day ordeal, formally identifying her son by viewing photographs of his remains. She was accompanied by two of her other adult children, Linda and David, and her sister Joan. In a hotel less than a 100 metres from the building where Damien had been killed, his sister Linda gave a brief but dignified statement to the waiting press, confirming that her brother had been identified as one of the victims. She said, quote, The family would like to point out that my brother has no criminal record and we would like to ask everyone, including members of the press, to wait for the results of the police investigation into the circumstances surrounding his murder. Linda went on to plead with the media for some compassion and privacy as the family struggled to process the enormity of what had happened to Damien. Nora Monaghan asked the embassy officials if she could visit her son's apartment while she was in Scaveningham, but they informed her that, as it was considered a crime scene, this would not be possible. In contrast to the Monaghan family who travelled out to the Netherlands to aid the identification of Damien, the grieving Costello family stayed behind in Ireland to wait for news, reportedly terrified by the amount of publicity and media coverage that their son's death was attracting. 29-year-old Vincent Costello and his 21-year-old brother Morgan were identified after a second round of DNA testing a few days later, and all three bodies were flown back to Ireland on May 11th of 2000. Vincent Costello was described by locals in Bansha as a quiet, well-respected man. A friend told the press that he was the sort you'd say never got into any trouble, that he never fought or got involved in arguments. Rather, Vincent was generous and was likely to be the first to help if he knew someone was short a bit of money. Vincent had been commuting to and from the Netherlands on a regular basis under the guise of labouring on building sites for four years before his death. It emerged that Morgan Costello had simply been on a ten-day holiday to visit his brother in the Netherlands. He had been due to return home a few days after his death. Morgan, who had recently gotten a job as a deboner in the Cahar meat factory, was described as, quote, more outgoing than Vincent. A Bansha local who knew him said, quote, 
Morgan was good fun, but he never stepped out of line. However, it was claimed by sources in the Netherlands that Morgan's trip had an ulterior motive, and that he was expected to bring a large quantity of ecstasy tablets back to Ireland to sell at an upcoming music festival. The brothers were laid to rest on Friday the 12th of May, with hundreds of mourners turning out to say their farewells at the Church of the Annunciation in Bansha. Their caskets sat side by side at the altar with a framed photograph of each young man on top. Foregoing the standard funeral hymns during the ceremony, the family instead opted to play some of the brothers' favourite Neil Young songs, and many were overcome with grief as the poignant strains of Harvest Moon rang out through the church. In his homily, parish priest Father Daniel Dwyer spoke of the unbearable pain that the Costello family were feeling and the need for the community to continue rallying around them. Father Dwyer said, quote, We know these men were taken from life at a young age in circumstances they never would have chosen. Any words, I say, cannot remove the pain that this family is feeling. In Ennis, the Monaghan family were experiencing a similar level of grief as they went through the motions of arranging Damien's funeral. Damien had been the eldest of ten siblings, the one that all of his brothers and sisters looked up to. The family lived in a three-bed, semi-detached house in the Clockley area of Ennis, and they were well-known and respected in the community. Damien's father had worked as a psychiatric nurse at Our Lady's Hospital in Ennis, but tragically, in 1994, he had died of cancer, leaving his wife Nora to single-handedly raise their ten children. Damien had been working in the local Tesco after leaving school, but following the death of his father, the young man travelled to the Netherlands in the hope of finding seasonal work. He landed a job as a labourer on a building site, but at some stage over the six years he lived in Skaveningham, his life took a different turn. Writing for the Irish Independent, Connor Sweeney reported allegations that Damien Monaghan and Vincent Costello had built up a profitable drug smuggling enterprise between Ireland and the Netherlands. Costello had lived permanently in the Netherlands for a while, but once the operation was up and running, he went back to Ireland to handle the Irish side of things, only travelling back to see Monaghan on occasion. Monaghan, on the other hand, was in charge of the Dutch side of things, and this brought him into the circles of many high-level drug barons from around the world, most of whom had fled their home countries for the more relaxed and drug-tolerant culture in the Netherlands. Connor Sweeney also reported that Dutch police had raided Monaghan's apartment the previous summer and were aware of the drug-related activities taking place there, and this further fueled the speculation in the media that Monaghan may have ended up becoming an informant. Numerous witnesses gave statements to Dutch police saying that the young Clare man had talked about all of his Irish contacts getting locked up and how he had lost a lot of money because of recent drug seizures. In the days following Damien's death, neighbours and friends of the Monaghan family rallied around to comfort them. Many locals in the Clockley area were critical of the media frenzy bearing down on Damien's grieving relatives since the formal identification of his body. Gary Stack, who was principal of the local primary school, spoke to a reporter for the Irish Examiner about the local anger towards the intrusive coverage, saying, quote, Is there any justification giving blow-by-blow accounts At times, it seems to have been forgotten that Damien has a mother, brothers and sisters. Mr Stack, who had taught Damien as a boy, commended Nora Monaghan, saying that she was a wonderful mother and this could be seen in the gentleness and self-respect that her children had. Damien's funeral was held at the Pro Cathedral in Ennis, where his uncle, Father Tom Monaghan, led the prayers. 
In a moving ceremony, Father Monaghan told the congregation of the admiration that Nora Monaghan and her children were held in by the Ennis community. He went on to express the shock and sadness of Damien's family and friends. As the funerals of the three men were taking place in Ireland, things were heating up with the investigation in the Netherlands and police arrested a 22-year-old Dutchman named Mike Braxhoofden in relation to the triple murder. Braxhoofden was raised in a home marred by drugs where violence was always lurking in the periphery. His father, uncle and brother-in-law all died in violent circumstances and Braxhoofden himself was accused of killing his mother's partner when he was just 15. Despite his tender age, the teen was already addicted to drugs and in 1997 he was jailed in Germany for possession of illegal substances. Upon his release, he met and fell in love with his girlfriend, Chantal, and at the time of his arrest for murder, she was pregnant and due to give birth any day. Braxhoofden was originally detained after assaulting a man in a snack bar in The Hague on May 2nd. Upon his arrest, officers noticed that the license plate on his car matched the plate number given by a witness at the apartment block in Skaveningham, where the three men were killed. This aroused their suspicions and they took forensic samples from him in custody. Detectives also decided to put a tap on his mobile phone, and through this they uncovered information that implicated Braxhofton in a brutal assault on a husband and wife after a deal to buy wristwatches went wrong. Forensic testing of the samples taken from Braxhofton during his initial arrest were subsequently found to match samples taken from the materials that had been used to cover the bodies of Monaghan and the Costello brothers in the apartment. It was based on these findings that the Dutch police arrested Braxhofton for questioning in relation to the killing of Monaghan and the Costello brothers. He stayed silent for the duration of the interrogation, refusing to answer any of the investigators' questions. He was subsequently released without charge, but was re-arrested two days later for further questioning. Again, he denied any involvement, but eventually, after almost a week in custody, he confessed and gave a full statement to police. What followed was a shocking account of the killings that was a million miles away from the gangland theories that had been reported extensively across the Irish and Dutch media landscapes. Braxhoofden told police that Damien Monaghan was his best friend. Both men had lost their fathers at a young age and they bonded over this while they built a friendship, which was based largely around the use and manufacture of drugs. In contrast to his close friendship with Monaghan, relations between Braxhoofden and Vincent Costello were strained, and the Dutchman believed that Costello had ripped him off in a deal to sell 20,000 ecstasy tablets. Despite the discord between them, they planned to travel to Ireland together in the near future to buy furniture for a business venture, which would be used as a cover for their drug trafficking activities. In early 2000, Braxhoofden went to stay with the two Irishmen following a fight with his pregnant girlfriend that became physical. By this time, he was also starting to go off the rails, spending up to £18,000 a week on crack cocaine. His drug use was so heavy that he wouldn't sleep for four or five days at a time and would often need to sedate himself with Rohypnol just so he could have a short nap. On top of this, Braxhoofden claimed to be a sex addict, but because of his drug use, he had performance issues. As a result, in order to satiate his addiction, he would take Viagra and then call up sex workers to come to the apartment. On the night of the murders, Braxhoofden said he was partying with a friend of his, 20-year-old Ronald von Bommel, at the apartment. 
Damien Monaghan was in his bedroom, playing on the internet while Vincent and Morgan Costello sat nearby. Braxhoofton, whose drug use had been steadily increasing over the past few weeks, was starting to lose his grip on reality, and early in the evening he became convinced that there was a person hiding beneath a black plastic bag in the living room. As a result of this, he took Von Bommel into the second bedroom in the apartment so that they could continue partying there. Braxhoofton's behaviour became more erratic and he started raving deliriously to Von Bommel, telling him that he had overheard Vincent Costello saying that he would, quote, feed him to the fishes when they travelled to Ireland together to buy the furniture. He told Von Bommel that he was convinced that the three Irishmen were in the other room plotting his murder. As his temper spiralled out of control, he approached Damien Monaghan, asking him if they could go somewhere private to talk but Braxhoofton claimed that Monaghan was smoking a pipe of crack cocaine and didn't want to leave his computer, and instead just told him to, quote, stay calm. Braxhoofton took this as a sign that Monaghan was simply buying time so that Vincent Costello could kill him, and he went back to Von Bommel looking for backup. He taped a gun to his arm and asked Von Bommel to turn the TV and stereo up to full volume in the living room so that the sound of the gunshots would be somewhat drowned out. He then returned to the bedroom where the three Irishmen sat and opened fire. The first shot didn't go off, but the second and third shots hit Monaghan and Vincent Costello in the head. Monaghan lunged for the gun, and as Braxhoofton shot him, he said his friend had screamed out, quote, My God, what are you doing? Braxhoofton then returned to Von Bummel, taking a second gun from him before he went back into the bedroom, shooting all three men again. He took Monaghan's half-smoked crack pipe and finished it off. He told the Dutch officers that Von Bommel stabbed the men to make sure that they were dead, and when he plunged the knife into Morgan Costello's neck, the Irishman bled profusely. They attempted to dismember the remains with a kitchen saw, but Braxhoofton vomited on the bodies so they gave up. Instead, they wrapped the heads in towels and plastic bags so that they didn't have to look at them and stuffed them into a kitchen cupboard to conceal them. Over the next two days, the Dutchman continued to party at the apartment, inviting over sex workers and smoking even more crack cocaine. While they had sex, the bodies of the three men lay hidden in the kitchen. Eventually, Braxhoofden and Van Bommel decided to burn the bodies and blow up the apartment. They dumped the remains of the Irishmen in the bath, doused them with petrol, and opened the gas tap in the kitchen. Then they poured petrol throughout the apartment and scattered fireworks and ammunition around before igniting the bodies and leaving the scene. For his part, Ronald von Bommel came from a family riddled with alcohol abuse. By the age of 13, he was involved with a youth gang, and he was suspected of being involved in around 80 crimes. However, where Braxhoofden was described as a, quote, deviant thrill-seeker, von Bommel was said to be a follower, someone who was easily influenced and eager to please. He was arrested and charged by police shortly after Braxhoofden's confession, but he refused to answer any questions that were put to him until he had spent more than a week in police custody. The news that the Dutchman had acted alone, carrying out the murders during a quote-unquote bad trip, shocked the public, both in the Netherlands and in Ireland. It was noted that their account of what happened on the night of the murders contained a number of inconsistencies that didn't match with the post-mortem results and other evidence found in the burnt-out apartment. However, Dutch authorities seemed reluctant to press them on these issues, instead choosing to accept the confessions and put the case forward for trial. 
the two-day trial began on October 31st, 2000. Because it was a complex case, with both defendants admitting some level of guilt, it was decided that the hearing would be handled by a bench chamber of three judges. This panel would hear evidence directly from the defendants, forensic technicians and psychiatrists. They would listen to arguments from the prosecution and defence teams before deliberating among themselves for a number of weeks. Once they had determined a verdict, they would come back to court and deliver it, along with a sentence. The panel was headed by Judge Irene de Vries. Members of the Monaghan and Costello families travelled to the Netherlands for the proceedings, which they were allowed to watch in private from behind a two-way mirror. Dutch police spent some time briefing them in the days before the opening of the trial to prepare them for the horrific details they would hear. Both Braxhoofden and Van Bommel had admitted their part in the killings, but their lawyers emphasised repeatedly that they were suffering from diminished responsibility due to the cocktail of drink and drugs they had taken, along with other psychiatric issues. However, under Dutch law, drug-taking alone is not a mitigating factor in itself, and Judge de Vries was quick to point it out to the defendants, saying, quote, There is a choice, and that choice is to take drugs. You were responsible. With that being said, the Dutch justice system also tended to lean heavily towards rehabilitation, especially for younger people, and so the prosecutors knew they would have to work hard to achieve the convictions and sentences that they deemed appropriate. The extraordinary catalogue of violence committed by the men before, during and after the killings was laid out in detail. The court heard that the pair had committed a number of violent armed robberies in the lead-up to the triple murder. Braxhoofden described his relationship with Vincent Costello and how the pair had got along initially before they fell out over a £10,000 ecstasy deal. Braxhoofden said that Costello had come to Holland to handle drugs and that he, Braxhoofden, had helped initially, but that eventually Costello did not want his help anymore. Von Bummel gave a detailed account of the night the three Irishmen died, telling the court how Braxhoofden had asked him for help killing the three men. The 20-year-old, described as baby-faced, said that he had spent 10 or 15 minutes trying to talk his co-defendant out of the idea. Von Bommel claimed that Braxhoofden had then shouted at him to turn up the volume on the radio and the television, where the movie Scarface was playing. Von Bommel did so, and Braxhoofden went into the bedroom and shot the three men. Von Bommel said that Mr. Monaghan had been badly wounded and was bleeding badly. The room was covered in blood. Then Braxhoofden had shot the man again in order to, quote, put him out of his suffering. The men's testimony differed significantly in parts, and they disagreed over how quickly the victims had died. Von Bummel asserted that Braxhoofden kept shouting at him, saying that the men were still alive. Braxhoofden had shouted orders at Von Bummel to stab the three victims. Meanwhile, Braxhoofden denied urging Von Bummel to stab the Irish men. When questioned on whether the men were alive or dead when they had been stabbed, Von Bommel insisted that the men were dead. He said they were silent and 15 minutes had passed since they had been shot. He went on to describe the attempts to dismember the bodies. Quote, Braxhoofden ordered me to cut up the bodies. I started on the neck of one of them with a butcher's knife, but the knife broke, so I had to use a smaller one, but I was not very successful. Braxhoofden was smoking a pipe of cocaine. Then he said he would do it himself. Then he vomited. 
On April 29th, after spending two days binging on drugs and partying with sex workers, the men decided to burn the apartment. They brought in petrol from the car, dragged the bodies into the bath and doused them with the accelerant. Then they filled the bath with fireworks and turned on the kitchen oven. One of them also opened up the gas pipe leading to it, though each blamed the other for this act in court. The evidence was gruelling and often contradictory. Both defendants sat passively and answered the judge's questions without emotion, though at one point Braxhofton became frustrated, sighing wearily and saying, quote, What kind of opinion should I have now? I don't know. I can hardly describe this period of my life. It was a twilight zone for me. Weeks and weeks passed by. I'm now happy that I'm responsible for my acts, but I can hardly believe that I would have been capable of doing such things. He blamed the drugs for his actions and maintained his claim that the Irishmen were plotting to kill him. The only visible reaction from von Bommel was when forensic pathologist Christian Hens gave evidence about the manner of death of the three men. Hens said that it was his conclusion that Vincent Costello had been stabbed while still alive. He explained that there was evidence of enormous bleeding from a knife wound to Mr. Costello's neck and that if the stabbing had occurred after death, no such bleeding would have occurred. Upon hearing this, von Bummel winced and slumped dejectedly in his seat. Psychiatric reports on both defendants were read aloud by Judge DeVries. Braxhoofden was described as being of medium or higher intelligence, with a propensity to surround himself with people that he could manipulate. Despite being greatly affected by the death of his father and his troubled upbringing, the psychiatrists refused to accept Braxhoofden's claim that he was suffering from diminished responsibility at the time of the murders. Judge DeVries commented, quote, You were conscious of your acts. All of the reports state that you absolutely were responsible. In contrast to Braxhoofden's manipulative tendencies, von Bummel's report indicated the opposite. He was deemed to be of lower intelligence, very easily influenced, and he suffered from low self-esteem. The defence case on behalf of the two men hinged upon painting the Irishmen in a negative light, in an attempt to excuse their deaths. Braxhoofden's lawyer, Mr M. Mance, said that he had not wanted to speak negatively about them, as it would upset the Monaghan and Costello families. However, the lawyer went on to say, quote, It is very difficult to talk about people who are not here to defend themselves, but if you want to hold a mirror up, I will turn it back on you. At this point, one of the Irishman's relatives left the courtroom in tears. But, Mr Mance continued, quote, The Irishmen were the ones who had the flash. They always had guns, drugs and alcohol there. We must ask if the victims were in some way responsible for the excessive drug taking by my client. He has a lower tolerance. He was brought into the atmosphere of this flat. Mr. Mance then read from a number of witness statements given by people who had visited the apartment in recent months. One asserted that there was always weed and cocaine in the flat and described it as chaos. Another witness gave a statement to Mr. Mance that Monaghan was complaining about all his seized shipments and the fact that most of his Irish associates had been arrested. Despite this, Monaghan always seemed to have a lot of money. Mance concluded his closing speech saying, quote, If you have weapons in your house and a supply of drugs, are you not running a risk? You cannot say that they deserved it, but it does create situations that could be misunderstood. Before the trial concluded, the state prosecutor Johanna Ridingius presented her argument for what she believed were adequate sentences for the two men. 
describing Braxhofton's crimes as, quote, vile and sickening, Ms. Redingius said that he deserved to be jailed for life. Describing von Bommel as a willing helper, the prosecutor said that he should be kept in prison for a minimum of 16 years. Neither accused showed any mercy for their victims, she said, and the manner in which they treated the bodies in the aftermath showed the utmost disrespect for their victims and their families. Ms. Verdingius went on to say that there was sufficient evidence from the psychological reports to show that both men would commit very serious crimes again, and society needed to be protected from Braxhofton in particular. She argued that the most severe punishment allowed under the law should be imposed, given the shocking and hideous nature of the murders committed. Following the conclusion of the trial, the Monaghan and Costello families read a written statement for the waiting journalists, in which they showed appreciation for the ongoing support of their communities in Bansha and Ennis. The statement went on to say that Vincent, Morgan and Damien were kind and caring boys and cherished family members. They asked for privacy for the families to grieve. Both families refused to give any opinion or comment on the men charged with their loved ones' deaths. The three judges considered the evidence over the course of the following two weeks before dismissing the men's claims of diminished responsibility. Braxhofton was found guilty of first-degree murder, but because of his young age, he was not given a life sentence of 20 years. Instead, he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Von Bommel was found guilty of assisting in the murder and was sentenced to 10 years. With good behaviour, Braxhofton could expect to serve no more than 12 years, while von Bommel could be out in as little as six. Kitty Noy gave a statement on behalf of the prosecutor's office following the verdicts, saying that the crimes were hideous and an appalling level of violence was demonstrated by the pair. Ms Noy accepted that the Monaghan and Costello families might be stunned by the leniency of the sentences and explained that though the three judges acknowledged that these were terrible murders, they also wanted to allow the possibility for the defendants to be given another chance and to show that they could do better. The chief police investigator expressed disappointment at the leniency of the sentences, saying, quote, We are disappointed. We would have preferred heavier sentences. As part of the sentencing, Braxhofen and von Bommel were also ordered to pay a portion of expenses to the Monaghan and Costello families to put towards the transportation and funeral costs for the three men. The state prosecutor quickly appealed the leniency of the sentences, confident that a higher court would agree that the men's actions showed them to be a serious danger to society. Unfortunately, the appeal didn't have the desired result and Braxhofen's sentence was reduced further from 18 years to 16 years. However, it was ruled that he should be placed in a psychiatric clinic indefinitely and the court stressed that this made it likely that he would be detained for a long time to come. On the other hand, von Bommel was deemed to be a co-perpetrator in the murders by the higher court as opposed to his original conviction for assisting in the murders. For this reason, his sentence was increased from 10 years to 12 years. He was eventually released after serving eight years and has kept out of trouble since, working as a plasterer. Braxhofton was not as good at keeping his head down. He was released in 2016, having served his 16-year sentence in a psychiatric clinic. Less than three years later, in May of 2019, he was involved in a grenade attack in broad daylight on two coffee shops in Delft, a town on the outskirts of The Hague. The incident occurred when Braxhofton, along with an accomplice, 
placed a live grenade outside each of the cafes. One of the devices rolled down the street and exploded, injuring a passerby in the face. When the grenades were sent for forensic testing, Braxhofton's DNA was found on the pin of one, and he was later apprehended at a police checkpoint. In his car, Dutch officers found a sawn-off shotgun, a Glock 17 pistol, another grenade, and a mask. They also found a box of ammunition and a semi-automatic gun. In October of 2019, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the attack. Although Braxhoofden and von Bommel accepted sole responsibility for the murders of Damien Monaghan and Vincent and Morgan Costello, the media frenzy and unchecked conjecture led to some speculation that the story was simply a cover for a more pressing motive, involving bigger players. The contradictory stories and the unwillingness of the Dutch investigators to dig harder for the truth only made this speculation more fervent. Either way, in the end, some glaring unanswered questions remained, meaning the families of Damien Monaghan and Vincent and Morgan Costello will never really know the truth. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week goes out to Maliki McKeever. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Alien Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And in Skaveningham, in Skaveningham, in the Skaveningham, in the Skaveningham, in the Skaveningham apartment, in the Skaveningham apartment.